the most heretical podcast about the New Jedi Order. I'm your host, Rocky, and with me are my co-hosts, Megan. Greetings. And, and Bria. Hey, everyone. This month, we will be talking about the first part of the Dark Tide duology, in which we remember that everything is very, very different from the galaxy we thought we knew. And we three are in the middle of this wonderful month-by-month New Jedi Order reread, and we will not be discussing spoilers, so please feel free to read along with us if this is your first time in this adventure. We do take it one book at a time, so you have plenty of time to keep up. And, well, it seems that in this book, the war has truly begun in earnest, and the Yuzhan Vong are quite busy now in the galaxy and we bring together a very large cast of characters to try to figure out how to deal with this complicated mess shall we say i am very glad it has a dramatis persona in the front of the book because i have number one missed these in canon books and number two forgot how wonderful and useful they are they are so useful especially because this book splits up a lot of the characters and I think that all the different plot lines parallel each other and sort of the same discussions happen in different ones. But for a long time, you have these three separate stories. There are so many different people, aliens, droids involved in all of this. If it weren't for the list of characters, and I do think that trend is carried on throughout the rest of the series, personally, I would be extremely lost on a fairly regular basis. And it's also thankfully fairly hard to tell from that list who our main characters are if there even is one i mean obviously it's going to be corin horn because this is a mike stackpole book so we got to talk about corin <laughs> oh yes and all the other pilots who found their way in yay pilots i feel like i have to be the um corin defense squad a little bit <laughs> because Corrin is like a bit of a joke in the fandom, I think, because he definitely is like a favorite among the authors and he just shows up so much that it's sort of silly. But this book reminded me of when I first read this, he was sort of a a mentor figure and I liked that he felt sort of like the cool teacher, like the one that you could hang out and chat with after class about just like whatever weird thing they were researching at the time. And I really like that about him. There's, He's also shown as a parent here, and I thought that those scenes really illustrated just, like, he's a good guy, and I don't know. I have very earnest feelings about Corrin, even though he's sort of a bit much. That's the thing. I love him, but I also have to make fun of him because he's the only person I know who's extra enough to be like, all right, I gotta do this thing. I'm gonna burn myself with my lightsaber. <laughs> yeah. It was so, so over, how, over Somehow top. it's not edgy because it's Corin. It's like... No. It's just he, super extra. Yeah, he's just so sincere about it. <laughs> it's... Oh, it was absolutely hilariously extra and... He very much reminded me of, like, the cool uncle who probably shouldn't have been allowed to babysit you, but is really good at making all of your other relatives think he, that they're totally a nice, upstanding, respectable uncle. He was in Corsac, okay? 
Yep. Totally respectable. <laughs> and then he's paralleled with Ganner, who is introduced with literally a villain goatee bullying a child. So Corrin comes off pretty well in comparison. I forgot how much I loved Ganner. More on that several books along the ways. <laughs> Ganner's such a jerk, but I love him. Like, him and then, what's his name? Worth Skitter and Kip are all, like, the three in one with their delightful, like, I'm a jerk, but I'm good at the force. You can't fight me. And I, I love like it. later Ganner, but I was definitely on Corin's side in this book. Oh, yeah, Definitely. Reading this in high school, I feel like I knew so many boys in high school who were just the non-Jedi version of what Ganner is kind of being presented as. A dick. He's a dick. I really hope I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. Sorry, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) There have been so many times in the course of this when I've had to remind myself to either censor myself or find in-universe substitutes. (laughs) I know, I'm just over here with the in-universe substitutes. Ganner is a tentacle. (laughs) I don't know. <laughs> wow. Sorry. <laughs> um, Corin in this book also creates the he's on the side of the like non-interventionist Jedi, which Rocky, we can go over this later if you want. I'm kind of jumping ahead. But Corin also is like both really the good guy and really disinterested in intervening in certain situations. So I'm fine with jumping all the way into Force Philosophy. It seems we're getting quickly into themes and discussions. Do we want to read the summary first, though? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm forgetting this. Let's let's read the the back of the book. (laughs) Well, one of the rest of you will have to do that because mine came in a hardcover edition that has that has like the two books together in one. Oh, Oh no, mine's on the other side of the room. Let's see if I can find it on the internet real quick. Mine's in my hand, so it's down to me. Go for it. Save (laughs) us. All right. (laughs) Excuse me. It is a perilous time for the New Republic. Just when unity is needed most, mistrust is on the rise. Even the Jedi feel the strain as rogue elements rebel against Luke Skywalker's leadership. When alien invaders known as Yuzin Vong strike without warning, the New Republic is thrown on the defensive. Luke must wield all of the awesome powers of a Jedi Master to defeat the gravest threat since Emperor Palpatine. As Leia Organa Solo and Gavin Darklighter lead desperate refugees in a fighting retreat from Yuuzhan Vong forces, Mar Jade Skywalker, Jedi apprentices Jason and Anakin Solo, and Jedi Knight Corrin Horn find themselves tested as never before by a faceless, implacable foe determined to smother the light of the New Republic forever beneath a shroud of darkest evil. Dot dot dot. I feel like I need some dramatic music. <laughs> that was the goal. <laughs> so yeah, I just realized on my inside on my book's inside dust jacket, the first tagline is the invasion continues. Yes. Accurate. It does. It not very wrong. <laughs> <sighs> so yes, that is indeed the short summary. And as I was making notes about themes, discussions between politics, the force, military things, and wait, how many characters are there? Seems like we stepped straight into the force philosophy. Yeah, I guess if we want to go right into this, one of the most interesting, like, 
I think the thematic like comparison that this book set down is that you've got um, Jedi like Corrin and Luke who both have this non-interventionist philosophy, but also like are very murdery when they need to be and choose very carefully when to do that. There's a couple scenes where Luke and Corrin both decide not to free people who have been enslaved by the Yusan Vong. And I found those scenes much more disturbing than I did even four years ago because they're very clearly presented as like, this is the prudent action, but it's also very vividly shown that what that's ha- what's happening there is that people are being are suffering and being like let suffer by the Jedi in action. And then meanwhile, Jason has this almost messianic conviction to save people. And Anakin wants to save people, but Anakin also realizes that he has a lot less experience than other Jedi do. And I found myself wondering to what degree we are supposed to root for one side or the other, or whether they're both being presented as equally good philosophies with problematic aspects and I think that conversation is something that goes on throughout this entire series yes I think I saw somewhere within this book Luke mentioned that there are roughly a hundred or so Jedi something like that and he's very concerned about do we have enough people what's going on here that number seems very low to me just knowing how big the galaxy is And another thread that I saw carried through a few times, both from my own instinct and mentioned, is the way Luke was trained. It was the quick, how do we get a Jedi quickly who just popped up at the age of, what, 18? How fast can we make him able to fight the Emperor? Which is a totally different philosophy, outlook on life, everything, than what might ultimately turn into, okay, what's going to be the best course of action to help the most people? Yeah. Part of that is why I don't entirely understand why Luke settled on there aren't enough of us to help as his philosophy, because he was one Jedi. There was, you know, no one to help him, but he went and fought himself. And now it seems like his argument is more, and Corrin's argument is more, if we fight at this point, we're going to cause more chaos going forward. We're going to teach the Yusan Vong more about how we fight and we can't afford that. There's this caution that the older Jedi show, but at the same time that caution is also shown to have really gruesome consequences in some cases. I may think it's worth mentioning that they know at this point that they can't sense the Vong in the Force and because they can't, that I, I mean, not that I think them saying, oh, well, we should hold ourselves back is necessarily the right thing to do, but I can almost understand it because there really aren't a lot of Jedi and 100 yet sounds low for the number of Jedi there should be, but that's also not bad for what, 15, how old are the twins, 16? Uh, so about 15 years of having a Jedi Academy around. Like, I don't know. Yeah. There's that section where Jason is thrown when he can't sense evil from the Yusan Vong technology. And I really liked that because evil has like always had a physical sense from for him. You know, he was like kidnapped in a very young age and he presumably like knew what evil felt like as a child. And these things don't exude any of that. So he's sort of like, if I can't tell in my like spiritual sixth sense that they are evil how do I know if I should fight them? Like, isn't evil self-evident usually? And like, 
through what sense is it self-evident? And I thought that was really interesting. Oh, I found that absolutely fascinating because all I could think, well, some massive foreshadowing, yes, but also the sense of this is going to shake everything we know. This is going to disrupt everything you think you know about how your galaxy works. And that level of introspection and how do I know I'm right when I've just been given something that contradicts it? That's a theme I think gets carried very well through the whole series. That's kind of amusing to me in contrast to going back to the whole freeing the slaves talk because Jason's the one who's all, oh, well, you know, we should go help them. And I think Luke's, I can't remember his exact phrasing, but it was something along the lines of, well, we don't know if they've willingly gone into slavery or not. Hmm. And there was was some line like that. I can't find it again, but it was just, it was, it was very disconcerting. Because, and I thought it was an interesting contrast, actually, to the the talk about slavery in The Phantom Menace. Because it's me and I'll bring everything back to the prequels. But, yeah, I'm trying to see if I can find where it was in the book. I, I definitely think I remember something along those lines. And, yeah, it's a totally, it's a weird, disconcerting outlook. It's... The ongoing thread of how do I know that the people who are right are actually right and wow, that seems really out of character here and there. Those those are just things that I feel like we see again and again and again. Oh, I found yeah. it. I oh. found the line where Luke's arguing with, or Jason and Luke are arguing and Jason's pulling the it's pulling the uh, oh, well, what about Mara thing mm. and Luke says something about the well, we have to allow some people to be in pain so others can avoid it. It's an easy choice when you're the one who will be hurting, but tougher when others have to suffer. You have to agree, though, that we can do nothing right now. We don't know enough about the U.S. and Vong presence here. We don't know enough about the slaves. We don't even know if they can be saved. For all we know, we've ag- they've agreed to this treatment. And then yeah, Jason goes, funny. I can't imagine his death was any was part of any bargain. And looks like, you're probably right, but we're not in a position to do anything for the slaves. I felt that Luke was very afraid here in a way. And it kind of does remind me of Luke's characterization in the sequel trilogy where he has done something and he regrets his own actions such that he is unable to do any further action. And it, it, I think the first time I read it, I was less, or well, I guess the second time I read it or however many it was, uh, I was less concerned with the suffering of the slaves and more with what does this mean for Luke? Why is he considering like waiting? Okay. This must be some part of like the wisdom that comes from the Jedi. And now I, I feel for the slaves more and I don't necessarily think it's out of character. It's, it's written in such a way that it contributes to the conversation that's going on around the force philosophy, but it also just, I understand why someone like Kip, who is then portrayed mostly as being like a loose cannon, might disagree with this. A loose cannon who desperately wants the galaxy to stop thinking of him as the guy who destroyed a planet. Yeah, that's... uh, Yeah, that's... uh, 
<laughs> I keep thinking I should keep a running tally of the number of times that someone alludes to, hey, that guy who blew up a planet once. Okay, we're adding that to our list because someone told us we should also keep a list of the dead Jedi. So, yeah. And yes, I think, what is it? Dead Jedi, dead Nogri. And dead and, Nogri. We had one dead and Nogri. And however many times we know that Kip is sometimes a total jerk. <laughs> All right. Did anyone keep a, keep track of that of that last one during this? Uh, this might take me a little bit. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll get back to it. We'll get back to it. I'll start the uh, I'll start the the counter in our notes. <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of funny counters and doodles and illustrations of some of our ideas that should come out of this. I wish I could draw. I like, I have to know what led to the note in here about um, UPS, I think, is the drawing. Can you, Wait, can oh, you tell what? me about that, please? Oh, yes, yes. So that was one of my thoughts as I was finishing reading last night, that by the end of the book, the Yuzhan have pretty clearly determined that they're going to hang out in the galaxy. They're actually here to stay. And my brain, my brain instantly came up with a world ship but with a U-Haul logo painted on it. <laughs> I really wish I could draw just so I could illustrate this. <sighs> if anyone, if any of our listeners can draw, please make, the, or Photoshop, please make this happen for us. <laughs> or for Rocky specifically. This book contained a lot of Yusan Bong technology and also a lot of alien rats there was this whole little ecosystem going on which which i like i always like the creatures it's sort of the like obligatory creature scene but i like the little ecosystem that was going on with the slash rats and whatever they fed on all of those little details just make it seem all the more real because wherever you go within our world oh hey look that's an ant hive you just stepped on that's a bad idea guess what those ants are important and even if you're not a university research team, often people know something about the local animals and plants and everything else around them. It's those little things that I feel like really humanize this otherwise huge and kind of so technologically advanced that we forget that there's any actual life in it. I definitely yeah. found myself just kind of replacing earth animals with some of these things like the Yusan Bong shells just became Nautilus shells. But then the slash rats became... Womp rats. Like, there's an illustration in one of the RPG guides, I think, of a womp rat with, like, spikes on its back. So I just pictured them as that. So it's still an in-universe animal, but it's the wrong in-universe animal. My brain is really good at weird photoshops mentally to describe any of the Yuzhanbong technology or any of the animals. Seriously, you could host, like, a drawing contest here. This is the description. What does this animal or thing look like? You'd probably get like a different idea from everyone. Yeah. So how did you picture the like the villa patties and the whole little village they had? So my brain has always kind of figured that villops look kind of like a more slimy organic version of like the Diglett Pokemon. The huh. little peach thing that sprouts <laughs> out of the ground, but just Ew. something like more slimy and organic looking. Man, mine didn't have slime. Good job on making it more gross. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive with these books. Impressive. Challenge with these books. <laughs> I sort of picture them as looking like a grapefruit, 
like kind of knobbly. Ooh. Hmm. I feel like I had an onion shape in my head. Like, not an actual onion, but just... <laughs> like with a little know. sprout on the top? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cute. <laughs> so a little sprout on the top, but I bet the sprout has to bite or something like that for oh, it to actually it. fit in. I don't even know. <laughs> Man, Vong, Yuzenbong, I'm sorry. I've already messed that up once tonight. The Yuzenbong are weird. <laughs> yes. Actually, I feel the like there's a ton of emphasizing like, how weird they were in this book and a lot of time spent on exposition and discussing their technology or this is what this thing is called. We picked up a lot of new words and a lot of new ways to describe their technology. Which is kind of crazy because I think we only got a Yuzen Vong point of view at the very, very end. Yeah, I was keeping like not a count, but just a list of I don't think we'd gotten Dovin Basils before. I think this is the first for Yorick Coral. Yeah. I feel like Worldship was new and the little weakness in the armor under the armpit. I I'm positive that was new. So that's one of those facts that I like, like I could forget my own name and I'd still remember that Yusan Bong armor is weak under the armpit. Like, it's just like, <laughs> out of all the things. My brain. But I had forgotten or not realized or whatever that the reason it's weak there is because it has gills. And like, congratulations, <laughs> that's disgusting. <laughs> like, oh, in armpits? Armpit uh. gills? <laughs> oh no, not our pit kills. Oh <laughs> god, that's so gross. <laughs> and I, I but there was always sort of like why is there just a hole in the armpit? You'd think they'd fix that, but no, it's got to breathe somewhere. <laughs> it's oh <so> my. <laughs> the, the Nautilus houses did seem kind of comfy though. I would sleep in a house like made of a Nautilus shell. That sounds nice. As long as it doesn't have the embrace of pain in it yeah that small detail yeah which this was definitely the first introduction of the embrace of pain and the use of it on non-yusan bong people and that happened so early Yeah, yeah and they very much clarified in this book about the horrifying sadomasochism in the yusan bong culture because I forgot that that happened this early, but this was also a lot more exposition heavy than I remembered this book being. It makes sense to actually lay out a lot of these basic themes and technology so quickly, but I forgot how much we get. Yeah, well, it makes sense because this was so new. So they had to they had to give us something. Although I think it's funny, this is exposition. It's such an exposition heavy book when I felt like I, Jedi, was required reading to get half of what was going on. Hmm. Interesting. Or maybe people who hadn't read I, Jedi before this just went, oh, okay, and breezed past everything else? I don't know. I would be curious about, like, people's reactions to Corrin if you haven't read I, Jedi, or if you haven't read, like, the Jedi Academy books. But I the, the exposition for this, for me, and Rocky, I'm curious if you felt the same way, almost contributed to like the rhythm of it like how in the beginning of the earlier Harry Potter books they kind of repeat here's what happened in the previous one it was that sort of thing and I can't 
knock that because it was so useful the first time I read them and it really like solidified this stuff in my brain. I found the writing in this one to be like, it wasn't extraordinary, but it was very, it did what it needed to do. Yeah, I definitely felt like the exposition was handled very well because yes, there was a lot of it, but instead of writing a very dry encyclopedia, it was woven in and logical. All of the things that we find out, like how to, how exactly to get torpedoes and blaster shots around the Dovin basils, how to make them reprogram the torpedoes a little bit, all of that was explained not in a and in this weird physics thing but instead in a hey based logically on things that a fighter pilot would have every reason to know can we try this thing they managed to weave a lot of the exposition in in such a way that it's things that people would totally have in universe reason to know but we as readers probably wouldn't yeah, it's a very a stackable is- thing to do this is like the difference between Stackpole and Lucino, right? Where Stackpole weaves it in a little bit more. And especially in those like X-Wing action scenes, it's not like Lucino's fine, but he's very encyclopedic in a way that this isn't. Yeah, it's a much more formal, it's much less formal of an exposition style overall. And I felt like it made it easier to immerse yourself in the universe and especially with so much going on and so many people having that exposition just flow naturally did make it much easier to follow. I realized in reread, no wonder I didn't remember a ton of this book from the first time I read it. Second time I remembered quite a bit more, but like there's just a lot going on in here. I'd forgotten that Jaina dialing down the inertial compensator actually became important. Like you can dial that down enough that it affects like the gravity outside your ship and then that will prevent the Dovin Basals from like interacting with you in certain ways. There was so much like, here's our strategy for how we're going to get around. And at the same time, all this hardware in this book is like, this is just the second book. Like all this is going to get more and more involved and more and more dangerous as we go. But for now we're laying down these, here are the rules of the pseudo physics And it's just, it's all such logical things for everyone to know, which is really the thing that I think sold me in this final reread. This whole thing flows together so well with so many different people and things going on, but it doesn't feel like you're reading a chapter and then going, okay, how did we get here exactly? It evolves into the next logical thing. There are, it feels like there are not red herrings or there are fewer red herrings within this whole series than you expected. Oh, that person totally went away. Are you sure about that? Yeah, a lot of those like breadcrumbs put down and then picked up later. Do you think that's at all connected to the kind of detail they go into with the violence in this book? Because I kind of like, we can transition into that if, if, like if you're good with that um because this is like very detailed in terms of the fight scenes it's very detailed in terms of like corin burns his own arm (laughs) like how do you feel about do you think that's appropriate tonally 
Ooh, the violence was definitely like now reading it, it definitely kind of raises an eyebrow to me. I remember ages and ages ago on the Force.net's forums, there was a thread somewhere of if all of these books were movies, what rating do you think they would get? And I'm fairly certain that the whole New Jedi Order series landed an R just from pure violence. And it's funny, as a teenager, that never really turned me off. And as an adult, I'm kind of reading it like, you touched a lightsaber to your arm? Are you serious? Somehow I don't see... I would hope that that gets into a pretty terrifying burn very fast, because otherwise I don't even think Jedi pain-dampening abilities could handle something like that. Well, that's where I get, like I was saying, like I felt like the I Jedi was almost required reading, because that's a move that Korn pulls an I Jedi, and then you, you know, it's also what introduced, uh, how do you pronounce his name, Elagos? Eligos, yeah. Eligos, Akala. So all of that stuff didn't bother me, uh, even on the second read through, because I was just kind of like, all right, Corin's going to Corin again. <laughs> <laughs> there are parts later in the series that I remember, especially as a teenager, kind of, I think, obsessing over in order to process them that were these like exceptionally violent parts that we'll talk about later, because the Yusun Vong. The thing that gets me the most is not the, like, fight scenes, but it's the torture. It's the embrace of pain. It's the, like, intentional pain sort of thing that I wouldn't say it bothered me as a teen, but I definitely, like, it, it struck me, right? You know, it was something that, like, it's ingrained in this series is, like, yeah, there's more violence than usual. There's more, like, body horror than usual, which... Now that I think about it, kind of explains my taste in books now. <laughs> oh, definitely. Like, as a teen, if I had told my parents just how graphic any of this was, I never would have been allowed to read it. <laughs> definitely not. And, yeah, I always wonder as I read these now, I'm like, where is the line between, okay, I can handle this, and I like to think I have a pretty good stomach, versus, wow. I mean, plot-wise, it makes sense that the torture happens, but somehow I'm not positive I needed to see it laid out. But yeah, the torture was definitely the thing that always tends to disconcert me the most because it's written as so normal. And you know that in-universe, that is what it is. And that, I think that's actually kind of brilliant that it can be written as, yes, this is just simply what the Yuzhanbong do for fun slash religious devotion and the pure nonchalance of it, it really adds to the jarring kind of unusual, everything you know is different atmosphere. Yeah, and I think that's almost why this bothered me less than like Crucible, for example, which besides oh, just not being a very oh, good book, um, was very violent as well. But it had this like indulgence to its violence. Like, look at this. This is gross. Um that the New Jedi Order doesn't have. The New Jedi Order is very practical about its violence, and that, like, not necessarily saying that that's, like, implicitly better, but for me personally, that made it feel more natural and less uh, less kind of sensational. Oh, no, it's definitely better. That's not a personal thing. This is The violence in this is definitely better than in Crucible, where they are playing Sabacc for levels of pain. Yeah, and, like, Crucible is also just tonally it's not a well-written book like it it yeah yeah <laughs> so han loses an eye it's fine he gets a slightly used one that i was thinking <laughs> yeah yeah 
I, at some point, yeah. I'm, I might have to get very, very drunk and have a discussion of Crucible because, oh, I have thoughts. Ask me oh, later God. before I get sidetracked. <laughs> Much later. <laughs> I was going to yes. say, but yeah, I think, I mean, I think for me that the, the torture, I think it has a place in this book and it makes sense because like Megan was saying, it has to do like with the religion and with their culture and to me until, uh, probably the books that are set on Yavin 4 a little further down the line mm, yeah. just to be vague about it. Yeah, I, I'll be interested to see like how in this reread I I feel about some of those scenes because as a teenager it was like, it's cool, it's edgy, blah, 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 overdramatic teen problems. And as an adult, it's more like it works within the setting, but it's still a level up from what I would normally have deliberately sought out but it's only because it works within the story that it doesn't really turn me off i'm also very glad that it's in text form rather than visual form because honestly i don't i think that's one of the reasons why i'm grateful this should never ever be any kind of tv series or anything because i think it's more horrible when your imagination has to fill in the blanks yeah, I agree. I, I And that's like true generally that I prefer violence on the page instead of on the screen because I just I don't really like to see it. But when you imagine it, it's, it's different. But there I don't remember the uh, there was a comic series set in the New Jedi Order. What was it called? Refugee, maybe? Invasion. 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 Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't think that was as dark as the books get. Actually, I don't remember it super well. It was cool. I don't remember it very well. I don't think that, like, brought the level of violence over. No. Yeah. Not. Yeah. I agree that uh, there's a lot to talk about this going forward. And if we ever do a spoiler section, uh, we'll definitely talk about, like, that Gavin 4 arc. Yeah. Or we can yeah. talk about it in, like, what, three three months? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. a few more months. Yeah, because. Yeah. I mean, at some point, we are going to have to do a spoilers episode because there are going to be several times when all of us just cannot say anything without massive spoilers. We might do a bonus episode one day. Oh, yes. I see a bunch of my notes about that. My handwritten notes have multiple instances of must not have spoilers, but all the foreshadowing. Actually, some of some of the age levels and age levels and cast of characters ties in well to my next overall thought. I was continually reminded how young the solo kids are. Yeah, mm, especially Anakin. I think he is written to be young because he thinks of himself as young in a way that the others don't like. Leia, there's that conversation where Jaina's joining Rogue Squadron and Leia is like doesn't want to appear to have favoritism toward her basically and talks very much as if like she's my daughter, you know, she I'm responsible for her. But other than that, Jason and Jaina are very much trying to forge their own path. Whereas Anakin, who is, I mean, he's only a year younger, but he, his attitude is more he's going to listen to the people around him. He's looking to others for guidance. And that struck me a lot, um, whereas, like, Jason and Jaina, I still feel like they're, you know, the age I were when I read it. I don't have, like, any 
problem with that except the kind of question that we discussed earlier like when do you get your spaceship license <laughs> like just logistically that's a yeah because it very much felt to me especially for like essentially highly privileged kids like jason and jana and anakin is getting your pilot's license in some form is that the equivalent of american teens getting their driver's licenses it is i still think it's, it's also like jana like, would go from getting her driver's license to like driving a tank you know <laughs> Gina reminds me a lot of some of the kids I've met through work who are like little kids who are driving race cars they're going to get their driver's licenses with many more hours of driving than probably any of us had at the time and and like thinking of that and realizing wait a minute that's probably not exactly uncommon in this universe interesting wait I'm I gonna like divert very... here yeah for like, well, I have a real world question now. What can you get a, can you train to be a race car driver younger than you can be like a licensed road driver? I have definitely seen quite a few kids racing. They're generally not driving full size cars, but I've certainly seen quite a few kids who raced. It's like drag my racing, like, right? Um, or whatever the term is. Look up, look up quarter midgets. They're little cars. I've run ah, into a lot okay. of kids who've driven those. They uh-huh. go faster than you expect. <laughs> I'm reminded too of like agricultural licenses. Like you can get a yeah. tractor license really young because you need it for your life. And I've certainly seen some states that will give you a driver's license younger than 16 in certain circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's I important also, to remember yeah. though for the kids that yes, they're privileged, but with that privilege also comes the weight of responsibilities. Because I think that if, yeah, like if we were all teen, like, you know, teenagers who our mother was the head of state and our family, our older family members were all heroes of the new republic, I feel like we would have all had to grow up a heck of a lot faster too. Yeah, because honestly, this was reinforced a lot in both of my rereads. Because when I first read these books as a teenager, my general headcanon was that the age of majority was probably younger than it is in the U.S., I feel like it might have been officially defined as being technically 18-ish, but it definitely feels like any teenagers we run into are often treated as by like 14 to 16, they can be mostly left unsupervised. And though they need some degree of adult help, they're definitely treated a lot more like 18 to 22 year olds than actual teenagers. As a teenager, I thought that was the best thing ever. And as an adult, I'm wondering, wow, what kind of culture is able to shape kids into being somewhat able to be left alone at that age and generally trusted to not totally destroy the galaxy, usually? They saved the galaxy like three times Oh yeah, before they were 16. I know. <laughs> the topic of responsibility comes up a lot in this book in these very weighty conversations. Um Jason and Luke have one, Anakin and Luke have one, and the other thing that reminded me of this was the conversations between Mara and Anakin, which are just a lot of very, uh, they, they outright say, you know, here's what responsibility means, here's how, like, when you should help people and when you should let people help themselves. There's a lot of very... Um, explicitly stated conversations about here's like the weight of the thing you are about to do and you need to consider what the thing you are about to do means for other people and I think 
the, the solo kids have probably been having these conversations for a long time. But one of the things that I liked about their characterization here is that they are able to have these very direct conversations with the adults around them. And the conversations felt very intense, but they didn't really feel unnatural. It was never like, here's the lesson for the day. It was more like, here's an idea about how you should maybe treat people. Let's see what comes of that. And the 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 plot with Mara and Anakin, where they help people who live on, is it Dantooine? Yes. Yeah. Um, was a little like, it, it like definitely portrayed the people that live there as very like exotic and primitive. And I think that like pl- doesn't play as well in the modern age. Is it well modern age? It's not like <laughs> these didn't come out in a modern age. It, it it's a, they're not treated like super well I don't think but that conversation is all about how do you help people that are different like have different needs than you how do you express your needs to them and I think there was a little bit of what's the word I'm looking for like exoticism there but it was also it tied really well into Anakin's characterization I actually think that the Mara and Anakin stuff is probably my favorite part in the book, um, which is saying something given how many pilots are in here. But <laughs> I I really liked that they were kind of put together to help each other. And Mara, you know, obviously Mara never wants to have to be reliant on people or for them to be like helping her because she's Mara freaking Jade. Like she doesn't do that. But they kind of, both have to learn from each other in a way, even if Anakin's doing a little bit more of the learning. And I really liked the conversations that they have, especially at the start where Mar is basically teaching him about not using the force in such a trivial manner. Um, Yeah. I love that part. Yeah. Because I wrote down one of the quotes from it where she says, uh, you can't hear a whisper if you're constantly shouting. And I thought that was just really, really good. Yeah. That conversation. And I also like, those aren't necessarily my favorite characters. Like that's not the part I would have expected to like, but that's that conversation is one of the things that have stayed with me the longest in this book. That idea that even just because you can use the force doesn't necessarily mean you should use it all the time. Yeah. And something about not using the force and using yourself instead is a good reminder that one does not have to be a Jedi in order to be powerful, important, capable. I, I definitely felt an undercurrent of that lesson. And it's something that I think we do see pop up a few more times within this series, the theme of you do not have to be someone with superpowers. Everyone is able to do things We all do different ones, but learning how to function outside of your normal comfort zone comes in handy. There's a line that I liked later that mostly I liked because it felt like it could be a line from Twilight Company, but Luke's talking to one of the the soldiers toward the end where they're actually doing like trench warfare on Dantooine. And the the officer says my troops will shoot things they don't understand and a Jedi sneaking around will be one of them. Like not only is the force not particularly useful here, it might actually be a liability because it makes you appear strange to your own soldiers. And I just like kind of thought that was a cool line. I don't necessarily, 
necessarily think that's making a big philosophical statement. Obviously, the Force is used in very, like, triumphant and very useful ways in this book. But that line, just, like, I thought that was a cool detail. Yeah, it reminds you about how many quote-unquote normal people there really are around here, and that though the Jedi are so spectacular, showy, and superhuman, they are not the only ones out there, and we have to take in the bigger picture of everyone. Yeah, but that's actually kind of what I like about Corrin, too, which I realize kind of contradicts what you said, because you're talking about non-Force-sensitive people. But part of what I like about Corrin is that he does have that, like, everyman feel, even though he has these Force powers. But Luke, too, kind of... I don't know. Maybe I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but Luke kind of argues for that. Like, we need to work for the good of, like, the everyman, right? But then Luke's most triumphant scenes are when he, like, rescues people using dramatic force power. So there's a little bit of a contradiction there, although I don't really think it's a contradiction because this is only the second book. It's just part of this ongoing conversation about what kind of power should be brought to bear in a situation like this, in, like, this situation where it seems like you can't possibly win. Speaking of the everyman, I am really glad that Gavin Darklighter, who... Every time I see his name in a book this far along in the timeline, I go, oh, little Gavin Darklighter's all grown up. He's rogue leader. It's so cute. Um, but I like that we got some of the focus on him and then we got to see Rogue Squadron and even when Jana joins it because the pilots really are the the every band and the every woman going on here uh, happening in the book. Sorry, I forgot to add English for a minute. Um I mean, obviously, yeah, obviously it's Stackpole writing it. So, like, I'm not surprised that we're seeing pilots, but I'm also really glad that they're there because you get to see. I feel like sometimes Star Wars has a tendency to get very focused on the Jedi. Um, and that's something that I think became a problem much further down the timeline uh, past the New Jedi Order. But I think when Star Wars gets too focused on on the Jedi and the Force and what they can do to win a war it sort of does itself a disservice. So I'm glad that we have the pilots here at the forefront, especially since we have some of the best lines. Oh, yes. And I'm so glad to see them being very much respected as superheroes in their own right. And like without having to be Jedi and while having a Jedi within Rogue Squadron is certainly a great bragging right, but they're awesome at what they do even without it. I like how much this book establishes the idea that no one group is going to be able to really do much with this war, and it's really going to take the entire New Republic, all of their friends, enemies, frenemies, colleagues, people they picked up off the street and said, hey, let's go fight the Yuzhan Bong. <laughs> it's going to really take everyone in order to do everything. But it all somehow does work out and flow together at the end. Except for Boris only... He can go away. We I was going to say, the only one who's really wrong is... <laughs> so, I always said so is this a good transition into the politics <laughs> section? <laughs> sure, because Boris straight up sucks. <laughs> <laughs> there is a truly, truly outstanding line that I feel the need to read in which 
Admiral Crefay reminds us of a few things. Oh. <laughs> oh, where is it? Yes. It's at the end. I know that. Yes, I- I'm looking for yes, in which Crefay is really kind of done with Phalia and asks Gavin Darklighter, in my empire, would you like a world for each of your children or will they need whole systems to rule? It's so beautiful. I fell off the chair laughing a little bit and someone should really just take Phalia to the burn ward for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he is my favorite terrible, terrible person. I love Phalia. He's so awful. I want to punch him. Everyone does the punching bag. Like I don't, I don't think anyone likes Phalia in universe or out. Well, he's got his cronies, I guess. Yeah, the oh, I can never remember their names. Pule, no, oh, Nia Knuv is one of them. Whoa, Whoa, there we go. Fun to say. I don't know that I've said that out loud before. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that just makes me laugh. I'm imagining now the New Republic equivalent of one of those carnival dunk tanks, except it's Phalia waiting to get tossed in the water. The line to dunk him wraps around the Imperial Palace a few times. Good fundraiser. But at the same time, though, like, since we're talking about the politics, I think it's very interesting. And I think we saw the seeds of this earlier in the... uh, in the expanded universe, but where you see the shift or rather you see the divide between the humans and then the, the non-humans where it kind of, you know, the two groups will bash heads sometimes because I think in the start of this book, there's a part where like Fela or Po or one of them is like, Oh, Leia, you're just trying to stir up trouble. Cause you know, you're not in power anymore and you just want to, make something out of this like coming up yeah there's a line where one of them is like oh that's very human of you and I thought that was interesting this is all in play that was interesting because I did kind of wonder I don't remember and maybe it's in the EU and I just don't remember it but I don't remember there being like a human stereotype does that just come from the fact that like Luke was human like what did what does it mean that that's very human of her uh yeah I think it's more them trying to just like insult her and how so much of the New Republic started with humans in power. Um, I think it also ties back into some of the stuff that came from the original X-Wing books where the Empire came up with this, the, oh, I can't pronounce it, Kratos? Yes, yes. We'll just go with Kratos, the the Kratos virus, which if any of our listeners hadn't read those books before, that just attacked basically any non-human species. Um, Because it was the Empire trying to screw people. And it created this very big divide within the New Republic. And I like that it's kind of, it continues on through here. There's also that big politics versus military divide, which is pretty much how this book ends with that idea that, like, there's a quote about uh, hand control of the military over to the military, as opposed to, like, it being kind of fettered by... Philia's Senate and there's so many different point of views in here that it's not like the book is taking a stance and being like all the politicians are wrong like Leia has a more nuanced idea uh, like Elagos has a more nuanced idea but there is that like military versus bureaucracy thing 
Yes, and I can definitely feel the undercurrent that the New Republic, well, they started out as the rebellion, essentially, and trying to transition from guerrilla warfare and being being in direct opposition to the leaders of the galaxy. Now it's their galaxy, mostly, and they have to appear respectable. So, of course, that's when all the politicians crawl out of the woodwork. It feels like growing pains that manage to flare again at possibly the worst time imaginable. You know, the, the more we talk about this, the more I'm sort of seeing minor parallels to the sequel trilogy not oh, because me. yeah i was say not because of the whole like human alien thing but you know the the new republic wanting to put its head in the sand to pretend like the vong aren't a problem like we, yeah. we see that in canon the first order mm-hmm. is a problem and leia's mm-hmm. like well fine i'll do it myself not obviously as drastically was as the resistance but it's kind of neat to see how uh how these stories the themes of them are still yeah. holding true in canon Oh, and I yeah. think some of that comes from just the dramatic potential of that, like, we're going to send the Starfighters out now. Like, the military stuff is much more dramatic than the bureaucracy stuff. And later in the series, like, becomes more complex than that. But I do think that both in the sequel trilogy with Leia's, and especially in, like, Bloodline with Leia's push against the Senate, and in the New Jedi Order, you get that sort of sense of triumphant, like, yes, the Rebellion is, like, the scrappy underdogs again, which, because they have to be scrappy, so you can't have them in power for too long, because then they become the thing that they were fighting against, not necessarily morally, but just, like, process wise it's more basically i'm saying it's more interesting to have rogue squadron going out than it is to have leia balancing paperwork the way philia is and like also philia is a sort of craven person everything's more interesting when you throw rogue squadron at it that's true yes i mean just the very fact that they kept and are still using the name rogue squadron despite the fact that the new republic has clearly Settled in nicely to all of their proper political bureaucracy. Yeah, it's not yeah. subtle, is it? No, but no. hold on. Wait, wait. I want to talk about. Wait, hold on. I guess I like Gavin for a minute and the Rogues because I think I'm the biggest. I might be the biggest pilot fan of the three of us. But I think it's the cutest freaking thing that Wedge and Tycho took Gavin out to dinner when he became Rogue Leader, and they gave him a Rogue Leader ring, and we're like, it's all on you now. Like this is, we're handing our squad's legacy to you, so we can go into retirement. And I'm just like, you were just this little 16-year-old kid when you joined the squadron, and now you're in charge. And they're reflecting upon, you know, Gavin even has this these this internal monologue where he's like, oh, gosh, it's so weird having, you know, Rogue 5 and, and Rogue 9 be female voices now. And I love that Aniri Forge is there. I love my girl. Um, and then, of course, at the very, very end where Gavin's like, assistant or whatever is like oh there's some old there's just some old guys in your office and they come in and it's Wedge and Tycho because <laughs> apparently Wedge I, and Tycho are just God. some old guys but oh I love my pilot stuff I need more of it and this is why the Stackpole books and later down the line the Alston books are some of my favorites and I'll try to tone down my squeeing now I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was and just seeing Wedge and Tycho pop up again seeing the quote-unquote old guys crawling out of the woodwork at least to me that was a huge reminder that this is not small 
this is a very powerful enemy and we really need all hands, tentacles, paws, claws, whatever on deck for this one. <laughs> you had to bring That's... up tentacles. I, no, yes! I love I'm gonna that. I'm going to see if I can work in tentacles into every <laughs> every one of my podcasts. Oh, no. That's a bad challenge. Why did I just set that? No, don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> the staffers <laughs> are doing that anyway, so we don't necessarily have to work too hard to do it. <laughs> True. I love the phrase, all claws on deck, though. I, <laughs> I can't believe I've lived this long without ever hearing that phrase before. Thank you. I'm working it. It's going to be in our show notes. Yes. <laughs> it also feels like a very fitting sort of thing for this galaxy. All it, various appendages from whatever species. It really does. <laughs> and then the Yusan Bong take the idea of various appendages and just run with it. In the opposite direction on somebody else's feet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I realize that the more I make fun of all of the Yushanbong technology and transplants and torture and so on, I feel like that is the out-of-universe equivalent of the in-universe black humor coping mechanisms because, oh, I saw a few of those pop up here and there. Yeah, I was going to say, like, spoilers? Sort of? (laughs) Logical inferences, too? (laughs) Yeah. I do, while we're praising side characters, I really like Elagos. I didn't really know, like, I know um, he's related to characters who were in Cornhorn's books, but he just seems so... He is the character in Cornhorn's book. He's the same guy who worked <laughs> with Corn's father, right? Uh, no, he's the one who, sorry if you anyone hasn't read uh, I, Jedi, he's the one who... Uh, like his father, Elagos's father or something had worked with the Jedi at some point. And so when Corrin decides to go try to rescue his wife, uh, Elagos is also like a prisoner there. And he figures out that Corrin's a Jedi and they work together to try and get off world. He's so elegant and like really calm. And I really like how he works with Leia and just, he was very charming. He's so nice and seemingly just so kind and it's such an odd contrast almost because like, you know, what's everyone else out there is running around on fire or running away as fast as they can. Honestly. And he's just still pretty chill. He's such, he's, as they say, a cinnamon roll. Someone yes. has to be around here. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. I think, Oh, speaking of side characters, this is a complete and utter tangent, but speaking of people who are cinnamon rolls, not being cinnamon rolls, can we discuss that 16-year-old Jason is, like, harboring the biggest crush on 21-year-old Danny right now? And she's just like, mm, you're a child. Can we yeah. not? And I like that yes. they right talk about that. Like, again, all these very direct conversations where she's like, I really like you, but that's not really appropriate for us right now let's just like be friends and have meaningful conversations and jason takes it better than basically any 16 year old i have ever met ever in my life and having been a 16 year old i think i have some experience in this (laughs) honestly his composure is pretty admirable he like takes a minute and then he's good (laughs) yeah 
Well, that's what happens when you're Leia Organa's son. True. True. You were to respect your else, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... <sighs> Seeing just how old the Solo kids really are and yet how young they are at the same time is fascinating. They're such naive, optimistic kids and they are so mature, so well-tuned into the Force. And Jason especially is starting to become very aware of what he doesn't know. And that he's asking bigger questions than it seems. I'm honestly surprised. Oh, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Jason is more mature than Ganner. Ganner is much older. Well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess it doesn't take much to be more mature than Ganner. But it's noticeable. Like, don't blow up a planet and you're probably good. Wait, Ganner didn't blow up a planet, right? Otherwise, you end up in that same, like, Ganner, Kip, dumpster fire category. Otherwise, you're probably pretty good. Yeah, I just, but I love the dumpster fire. (laughs) Even though they're the worst, I love the dumpster fire. I kind of do also, mostly because they're fictional. (laughs) Yes, I mean, let's be clear. I would not like this version of Ganner in real life, but I appreciate Ganner for reasons we'll go into at some point and also because Kip Duran is an idiot and I love him and I may have to be the Kip Duran defense squad on this podcast <laughs> I couldn't get over Ganner being mean to Valen but I have my own like garbage heap to pile in later I'm sure so no judgment here <laughs> we all know I'm in the dumpster <laughs> I think of like what else from the book. Oh, Han's still pretty messed up. Man, yeah, Han spends most of this book like hiding away from all of his problems. Yeah. Which understandable. Yeah. Yeah. And like in reading it now in reread, the way Han describes how do I deal with this? How do I get these images out of my head? How do I deal with grief and getting a lot of well-meaning results? So many well-meaning answers from people who legitimately are trying to help. But there is very much the undercurrent that Han is not going to work through any of this grief until it makes sense to him. It's so realistic, and it really hit me hard in this reread. It's like, wow, that's actually a really, really realistic depiction of dealing with grief, trauma, and how do I put something together and figure out how to go on after this? Yeah, and we'll get more into the Han grief process more than I would ever want to further down the line, I believe. Oh, yes. Oh, Han. Why are you like this? At least he's not necessarily blaming Anakin every five seconds anymore. Yay? And at least Anakin's starting to realize that some of that, solving a lot of it and making peace with it is not just Anakin's responsibility. Han also has to find some way to live with it. Yeah. It's another reason why I'm glad he and Mara get to have their super special field trip to Dantooine. Because Mara's honest. 
sometimes yep. brutally so. But that's a lot of, I think, what Anakin really needs is just someone to kind of lay down. This is how things work. This is not your fault. Yep. You cannot fix every last bit of it, but you can fix something. So work on those. Mara is in an interesting place because she's both at the core of the Jedi Academy as it exists at this time and has differing philosophies than Luke in some ways, which I think is really valuable for Anakin because he can see that this is a figure who's been really important in his life. She's like, she's family. She's a mentor to him, but she's also telling him things that other adults aren't necessarily going to tell him because of her background. And I think uh, I can't say enough that I really like those uh, scenes with them. I think those scenes are so important in terms of Anakin growing up a little bit since he does feel kind of young, especially in comparison to his siblings. And it seems like he's starting to grow into his role, both as a Jedi and trying to figure out how to be a part of such a famous family and some of Mara having such a different perspective and being so intensely self-reliant. I think a lot of that is kind of the reality check that a lot of the characters need, but not all of them always absorb. Hmm. Makes me wonder what would have happened if Jason was on that planet instead of Anakin. Like, I don't remember if we get more Jason and Mara stuff later, but I feel like especially her experiences with kind of dealing with her own time on the dark side uh, should come into play with Jason somewhere. I don't remember whether they do. Well, I could think of somewhere, but it's not in this series. <laughs> more on that Ooh. rant later also. I will add yeah. that to the pile of things I need more time to discuss. <laughs> oh no, Priya. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Well, did somebody open up the can of worms again? I think so. <laughs> can of okay. Tizo worms? My bad. Uh, Here's yes. Quick, I'll deflect the conversation. I want to know, do the Jedi actually have a travel budget? Hmm. Unlimited. Because there's one point where someone says, oh, well, I don't think the Jedi has as big of a travel budget as you guys. And I'm like, you have a travel budget? Like, do you get funded? Does the New Republic give you, like, a stipend each month? I need to know these things. Do they have to do expense reports when they come back? Flyer miles? (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Does she have to expense all her fuel for the Jade whatever ship we're on? (laughs) Or does she just have surprise secret sources of money from the underworld or that were shamelessly stolen from the Empire? Yeah, I think Mara in particular. Mara left the Empire and acquired a fairly substantial amount of money because she knew how to get access to all sorts of Imperials' money. And if they were dead, well, they didn't need it. I've always kind of had that headcanon. I think of all people, Mara is probably the one who doesn't have to fill out expense reports, but everybody else does. Yes. Somehow I don't think anyone in the Jedi Order, even Luke, would be brave enough to ask Mara to fill out a proper expense report. Nope. She's sleeping with the Jedi Grandmaster. She doesn't have to do paperwork. It's fine. And she doesn't want help from anyone, so she's not going to get somebody else to pay for her gas for her, I presume. <laughs> <laughs> but she also might not tell anyone where she actually got the expense account to pay for the gas. <laughs> hey, uh, Mara, this is Bill to sheave. <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> oh boy. 
I'm also going to have to make a list of all the headcanons I developed over the course of reading this series and how many of them have still stuck with me. Absolutely. <laughs> Though I must admit the mental images of what a lot of the Yushanbong technology look like are definitely some of my favorite headcanons, images, whatever. And I also forgot about the little reptilian soldiers that they were using, like as foot yeah. soldiers. All of the different things that pop up in warfare that kind of ground battle that ends this book is such a big scale and so weird i would love an illustrated like guide to yusan bong warfare but i also had questions about those reptilian soldiers like are they the same species because it was also i imagine reading this book the first time that you might even imagine that the slaves were being transformed into those which is not entirely true like, are they a different species? Are they entirely, like, biotech, just born in vats? Like, there are a lot of questions. <laughs> but I, I think they're the equivalent of droids, right? They're basically in there so that you have a low-level enemy that Jedi can carve through before they get to the, the boss fights. Yeah, I feel like it's pretty normal to walk away from one of these books with more questions than answers. Especially this early on. Yeah, I was going to say we get some more answers later about this particular kind of tech. And about the... Uh, I'd forgotten, speaking of things that are gross, um, the bit where Jason gets implanted with the seed. <laughs> and, yeah, like, that actually... Yeah, that was a bit much, where you see that the like he could have potentially become a slave, and then Luke just, like... Pops the seed out. Gross. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh. All of those little bits of body horror early on are so good at establishing the theme, the feel, and well, it the Yuzhanbong have a flair for the dramatic. Yeah. And that idea of like growth and transformation, and you could potentially become one you could be turned to their side, not by any moral difference, but by, like, Jason is so concerned with being turned to the dark side by his own brain, kind of so concerned with, are my thoughts correct? And then here comes something that's going to take over his thoughts and pull him to the enemy without his brain being involved at all, which I imagine is particularly terrifying for someone who's as thoughtful and sometimes, uh, like, navel-gazing as Jason is. <laughs> Yeah. Which I, I didn't think really that's like, something we'll see later. Again. Yeah, absolutely. Again. I didn't really think about that until I sort of said it just now, but that idea of lack of control fits into Jason's whole conversation pretty well. And being in control, learning when it's okay to not be is another theme that I think we keep on seeing. More so in this series, I think, than in the rest of Star Wars literature. Huh. Because I would say, I mean, that's been a big thing in Rebels lately, too. Which, yeah, like, see, I'm also not super up to date on Rebels lately, but, like, in this, the lack of control. Hmm. Hmm. 
I feel like I'd need to like write a whole academic essay about that. Like what other characters do you see dealing with that lack of control thing? Maybe Han really, although this one doesn't go so deeply into Han's character, but he's clearly feeling very, his emotions are all over the place right now. And I'm sure he feels like he's not in control of his life. Do it. Yes. The right the essay about control. Do it. Yes. It's going to be 19 <laughs> months up, long. I may end up writing bits and pieces of short essay here and there. <laughs> yes. Someone write it. One of you write it. <laughs> All of us. Both of you write it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's about all that I have to say um, about this. We got one question from Twitter from Brian about why is corn so great, which I feel like we addressed early on. <laughs> I think we addressed that almost right at the beginning. Yep. So if anybody else has questions, we're happy to field questions on Twitter for uh, the next episode or just like to chat on Twitter about them. Yeah. Nancy wanted us to talk about how much... Talk about Corrin and Mara. And I said, well, yes, they're in the book. So I think we've got that. And she said, talk about how much they hate slash like each other. Which I feel like almost we'll do better talking about that next week. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of Corrin and Mara. Or next month, sorry. Next week. (laughs) It's an awfully quick deadline. No, no, don't worry. We're good. We're good. (laughs) Not next week. Gotta finish reading The Last Jedi first. (laughs) But yeah, Yeah, I feel like. We'll get back to that next month, Nancy. Yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Yeah. I think I know what she wants us to talk about, and I don't think it was in this book. I feel like we've all acquired quite a few more on that later kinds of topics. That is the nature of the New Jedi Order. Very true. And, well, with that, before we go off on yet another rant about something... Let's see, where can we all be found online? Well, I am Lady Darth Kytus on Twitter. I definitely do talk about Star Wars, among other nerdy things, and snippets from my daily life. And my and everybody else? Okay, I'll go. Uh, or, yeah, no, go, ahead. go, Megan. <laughs> no, you. No, you. Um, <laughs> I'm at blog full of words on Twitter. My latest for StarWars.com is about Maul's influence on Ezra. And I also write for Den of Geek and Star Wars Insider. And I have a couple choose your own adventure style uh, narrative games up if you're interested in that. All that can be found via Twitter. And then you can find me on Twitter at Chaos Bria. Uh, I'm also a managing editor over here at Tachi Station. So basically, I edit everything that goes through. In theory, I catch all the typos. I don't always. Um, but you can find my comic and book reviews over there. And then uh, I occasionally also write for Big Shiny Robot. And I run the geek fashion blog, White Hot Room. Awesome. And on that note about Tashi Station, this podcast is distributed as part of the Tashi Station Network. And it has been brought to you in part by all of your support listeners on Patreon. And if you like what you hear, that is on Twitter as well. Please subscribe to us. And there's plenty, plenty of Star Wars content for everyone's needs and wants. And, well, join us next time when we are reading part two of Dark Tide, which is ruin and as i've described this series before the poodoo hits the fan fan falls over the fan catches fire 
and read and tweet along with us using the hashtag BongCast. Thanks for listening, and until next time.